Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 25th, 2021. I'm John Potthorst, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We are four weeks away, four weeks away from the roast of Mayor Soloveitchik, Commentary's 11th roast, our first public event in two years at a ritzy hotel in New York. You'll find out the identity of that hotel and what time to get there and when to have drinks and when to have dinner if you sign up to attend the roast, buy a ticket. It's an expensive ticket. I'm telling you right now, expensive, but it's also uh, it's one of the ways that you can help support commentary is to buy a ticket to the roast. Go to commentary.org slash roast 21 to find out more uh, with me as always. Executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Fresh from the shores of uh, of the Hudson, a tech commentary columnist and contributor to our Woke the Threat issue, Jim Meggs, James B. Meggs. Hi, Jim. How are you? Hi, John. Happy to be here. So, Jim, one of our favorite one of our favorite guest guest stars, um, has not one but two pieces in Commentary's November issue. His contribution to the Woke the Threat Symposium, which is uh, a case study of an effort to um, tease wokeness out of existence in its crib back in the mid '90s, uh, and how uh, a brilliant effort to wake up the academic world to the nonsense that it was about to swallow hook, line, and sinker um, was both a, a created a huge national sensation, uh, but failed to do the trick because everything that was predicted in that brilliant parody article we're about to talk about has come true throughout the Academy. Uh, and so the piece that Jim uh, wrote on the subject uh, is titled How Alan Sokol Won the Battle but Lost the Science Wars. A brilliant parody was the harbinger of a dreadful future. That's piece number one. Piece number two, COVID and the authorities, it's even worse than we thought. And since its publication, it's now even worse than we thought it was when we titled Jim's piece. It's even worse than we thought. So um, I'm not quite sure where to start. I think maybe we should start with the COVID and the, and the authorities uh, simply because people are, people as, as ever, uh, the mainstream media are finally cottoning to uh, some of the uh, misbehaviors that we, um, not part of the mainstream media, have been talking about now for months. And Jim, in the pages of commentary, I think this is your third piece kind of on the general subject of our public health authorities, our national public health authorities and Anthony Fauci and how, and how their handling of, 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 the, of, of COVID uh, now we are, we are tipping into some pretty, pretty, pretty dark waters and alarmingly dark waters. Absolutely. And, you know, for throughout this pandemic, I've been writing about concepts that you have often talked about on the podcast of elite panic and how the authorities often try to couch their statements to the public in certain ways to to make sure that we don't all run off and do something crazy or they think it's okay to, to kind of shade the truth. Uh, 
I think they downplayed a lot of risks early on through a kind of a false sense of, of being careful. But what we've found out in the recent months is way worse than that. We're talking about real deep dishonesty, not just about what to do about the pandemic, but what the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, was doing in terms of research into coronaviruses in the years leading up to the pandemic. A lot of people probably remember a kind of heated exchange between Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci about whether the NIH had funded so-called gain-of-function research, where you, you take a virus, it's suspected of maybe having the potential of affecting people, and, and you, you tweak the genome in such a way to make it more infectious, and then you test that more infectious uh, pathogen in mice that have been uh, bred to have lung tissue that's similar to that of humans. Well, you know, Fauci has denied it, denied it. He's still denying it, in effect. And yet the, um, we've now known through a series of leaks and things released through the Freedom of Information Act that the National Institutes of Health was deep in funding this kind of research. And some of this research was, in fact, going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in the years leading up to, uh, to the, the dawn of COVID. That doesn't mean that we've proved that, that COVID-19 is the product of such research. The only research that's really been confirmed so far involves uh, different kinds of viruses that aren't closely, closely related to SARS-CoV-2, but it, the, certainly the pattern is damning. And what's even more damning is the seemingly coordinated effort of public health officials and some leading experts in the virology community to not only deny that they'd been involved in anything like this, but to really try to, uh, to denigrate anyone who raised this possibility that this kind of research had been going on. And there is something very, very fishy here that I think we will be looking into and talking about for years to come. Um, I just want to, I just want to point out to add to this, that, uh, the information that is now coming out, uh, particularly as relates to the confrontation between uh, Dr. Fauci and Senator Paul uh, during that hearing where Fauci lost his temper um, uncharacteristically, right? He's been unbelievably kind of phlegmatic or, you know, unemotional, unemotional is not the right word, but, but, but good, cheerful and, and, and hard to throw, right? Hard to kind of shake off his general attitude, but Rand Paul really did uh, lost his temper. And it now it's hard not to look at this and think that he lost his temper because Rand Paul was dancing around an area that scared the crap out of uh, Fauci. And um, so Brianna uh, Keller of, of CNN, who was, I guess, the morning host of CNN, um, tweeted the following on Saturday, I believe, uh, or maybe Friday, I'm not quite, no, Friday. Quote, Dr. Fauci and American public health officials should answer questions about oversight of this U.S. funded research. No public official is immune from scrutiny. But Senator Paul, a bloviator of misinformation, is certainly not the man for that job. Now, this is interesting in two ways, it strikes me, one of which is Senator Paul was the only man for that job because he was the only man doing that job. I didn't notice Brianna Keller doing it or anybody on CNN doing it, it was 
Rand Paul, who raised the issue in a public forum. So saying that he's not the man for the job is a fascinating indictment of Keller's own behavior and that of her network and that of the mainstream media in general. And secondly, um, where was all the scrutiny? Yes, public officials should be subject to scrutiny. Try to be a person subjecting Rand, uh, uh, Anthony Fauci to scrutiny who is not necessarily part and parcel of the kind of libertarian, uh, the public health authorities are all full of crap and I'm not going to vaccinate because they're all lying to me crowd. Who in the kind of establishment has subjected Anthony Fauci to a moment's scrutiny, let alone, you know, sort of like said, hey, uh, maybe we need to look into the question of whether or not American research monies from the U.S. government completely inadvertently may have ended up paying or having playing some role in research that went wildly awry and and that through no fault of anybody's conscious uh, workings led to this catastrophe. So I, I just thought, you know, to frame it this way, because I'm no fan of Rand Paul's. We've published very hostile stuff about Rand Paul, particularly on foreign policy, his views on Israel and the like. But for this to be the subject on which you should say Rand Paul shouldn't be allowed to open his mouth when he was the only person who opened his mouth is pretty uh, chutzpah dick, as my grandmother would say. It's a version of Republicans pounce, you know, Here's this guy raising an issue. Well, we have to admit there's some validity to the issue, but, but you know, he, we, it's somehow inappropriate or in bad taste for him to focus in on it. But the point you made about where was CNN on this? This was, I think, one of the really staggering things about this entire story going back to the early months of the pandemic was the way that the media carried water for, for various officials and others who wanted to uh, portray this whole idea of the possibility of a lab leak as some kind of a right-wing myth, a conspiracy theory. And the, um, what the officials did was, was, was bad. The media took it farther. I mean, you know, when there, somebody would make a statement that it's... No, certainly not confirmed that it's a lab, like it's much more likely it's from a natural source. All the self-appointed fact checkers would then double down and say, this was a, you know, a ridiculous conspiracy theory. And so the fact that Paul was, was pushing on this point, what research has NIH funded, that was exactly what they wanted to cover up. Whether or not there was a lab leak, the very fact that they were involved in this controversial research, and to rewind the tape a little bit, Back in the Obama administration, there had been a move to put some guardrails around this research. Everybody knew that this is a really dangerous idea to take a, a potential pathogen, make it deadlier, make it more infectious, test it in mice in a lab. Everyone knows there's a risk that somehow that pathogen could get out. Could get out. It might infect a worker, an animal might escape, it might come out in, in, in 
you know, wastewater. There's a lot of different ways that a pathogen could escape that kind of facility. So everybody knew it was dangerous. They were trying to put limits around it. And what appears to have happened is that there were some, some kind of subtle redefinitions of gain of function. There were various ways for the people who wanted to keep funding this research to uh, kind of fudge the boundaries of the restrictions. And that seems to have been going on for several years leading up to this. So, so the, the idea that this is a totally ridiculous idea, uh, you know, the, the gain of function research was a totally ridiculous idea was it was important for them, I think, not to have the public talk about this, not to spur conspiracy theories and stuff. So in, in effect, they conspired to keep this a secret in order to prevent people from coming up with conspiracy theories. And it really does look fishy that there was this February 1st meeting in 2020, uh, you know, in the early months of the pandemic, going into the meeting uh, involving Fauci and other figures at uh, NIH and some leading people in the virology community. Going into the meeting, a lot of them were saying, well, you know, there are some features of this virus that look like they might be engineered. This is problematic. Let's figure it out. Coming out of the meeting, they all were unified that this was a crazy idea that had to be suppressed as quickly as possible. What did they talk about in that meeting? What was the evidence that was so convincing to them? And we still don't know. And they've done everything they could to prevent us from knowing. So this is going to be a species of elite panic. And my concern moving forward is that their reluctance to be truthful here and their, their fear, their apprehension about how the public would receive valuable research associated with gain-of-function research is going to end up anathematizing gain-of-function research and make it impossible to get public funding for something like that, which has utility, um, albeit hard to defend amid a global pandemic possibly resulting from an outbreak in a lab of an engineered virus. It's a tough case to make in the free environment, but that's the sort of thing that could result that the public will be reticent to, and, and certainly uh, executive agencies will be really reluctant to uh, put any funding behind this sort of thing. Well, I think being people being cautious about gain of function research is, uh, I mean, I don't know enough about it to defend it. I know that there's some leading scientists who are deeply concerned about it, but I would say we have to balance the potential benefits against the potential risks. And the potential risks seem extremely high. Uh, you know, if, you know, what if you engineered a, a, a pathogen that's more like, like MERS, something with a 30% fatality rate. And that got out and went around the world. I mean, it's just, it, it, the consequences are almost unimaginable. So I do think we need to be cautious about it, but I think there's an even bigger problem here, which is the public's gonna be distrustful of all scientific experts and all public health officials. And we're gonna set ourselves so far back on, in terms of being able to turn to science, turn to experts, get some guidance on important issues now that everybody thinks that they're lying about everything because they were, <laughs> you know, as I said in that piece, you can't expect people not to, uh, if you don't want people to believe in conspiracy theories, you have to be transparent and they haven't been. And they've, in fact, they've worked really hard to, to marginalize anybody who raised these questions, even in the scientific community, so we shouldn't necessarily trust them. And it's not good enough for people to say, trust the science when some of the key people are 
are doing everything they can to push certain uncomfortable facts under the rug. Since my column came out, there have been three more revelations that just hammer this home. Um, one was in September, the NIH, uh, under a Freedom of Information um, Act request, finally released a report from the EcoHealth Alliance. People will probably remember that's the group that, fu that, that funnels a lot of this funding to Wuhan and other labs, takes government grants and then redistributes them. They had been funding some research in Wuhan in 2017, 2018. Uh, now that information it, it has, that report has come out. Another report came out that it was a grant proposal from EcoHealth. This one that went to DARPA uh, to do research on what's called the furin cleavage site. So people who are really deep in the weeds on, on, on COVID know this is the, the uh, part of the spike uh, protein that enhances the virus's ability to get into our cells. So they were proposing to doing exactly the kind of research that people suspect or worry was done in, in, as a kind of gain of function research to make the, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, virus more infectious if that happened. That grant wasn't approved, but the fact that they were asking to do this very kind of work after all blandly saying nothing like this had happened or would happen was absolutely stunning to everyone. And then just a couple of days ago, the NIH sent a letter um, to Congress admitting that they that they'd been funding this gain of function research without using the word. Um, and uh, th this research and the research had resulted in a more infectious pathogen that uh, that that made the mice that received it sicker than they were than they would have been. So, but, but in the process of sending that letter, they're kind of tossing the Eco Health Alliance under the bus. They're saying, well, they didn't inform us properly. So it's, it, with each passing week, the, this looks worse and worse. The, the, it's almost a little bit like Watergate where, you know, you get one stunning discovery after another over weeks and months that, it, and every time they make the people at the center of this look less honest and, and and uh, much more suspect that they knew a lot more than they were saying, and they worked pretty hard to make sure that we wouldn't know about it. Uh, Jim, one of the important things you bring up in the column you wrote about this is that in some of the documentation that's been made public as a result of FOIA requests, um, there's page after page of blacked out material, um, which, as you note, only adds to conspiracy theorizing and suspicion. And as you ask, what what could be in um, a sort of lab research report or or you know funding report that would require this extensive blacking out? It's crazy. You look at this one of the FOIA requests. Uh, I think this one was from the Intercept, which has done a really good job of pursuing this information. One of these requests was for the notes from that February 1st meeting that I, I mentioned. Eventually, after over a year, they got them. And page after page was just black lines. You know, there'd be a name at the top. Somebody said something. Then 30 blacked out lines, page after page. And this is not something like, you know, an FBI or CIA investigation where they might be disclosing sources and methods, or there might be, we don't want to, you know, give away people that we're working with overseas. 
This is public health. These are scientists being funded by, by grants that are not secret. And you know the, uh, the, the idea that this information where these people are discussing a global health emergency and yet it has to be kept secret from the public. It's, it's absolutely staggering. And I'm, this is finally getting a lot of attention. The mainstream press, after really um, wanting to avoid this story or denigrate anybody who pursued this story, finally over the last seven or eight months, uh, the mainstream press has come around on this to a large extent and, and they, people are looking into it. Uh, but I'm still kind of struck that it's not even more controversial. You know, the, the millions of people have died from this virus. We had this collection of experts got together to, to figure out where it came from. And they came out of that meeting, basically determined not to let anybody look into it. And this, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. That's you, you have a line in, in the column that I think is it's kind of you write it in passing, but I think it gets to the heart of the, the trust issue that you've outlined, uh, the public trust, where you say what's public about a public health, uh, a group of public health experts who can't discuss what they're doing with the public. And and to John's earlier point, it absolutely was it, it was literally Rand Paul's job to ask questions because he has oversight power over those agencies. But I think that that what a lot of this in particular exposes far more than even the kind of you know, uh, back and forth about masking and lockdowns and whatnot. This exposes that in the mind of public health bureaucrats, public means one way. It means them telling the public what to do and the public having no way to respond or no right to respond or to ask questions. And that exposure, I think, ultimately will be healthy if we can work our way through it and, and have more transparency, as you say. But right now, it just really makes people angry and it should. I mean, it makes some people angry and it also makes other people angry because a bunch of people really understandably, I think, want to believe that what they're being told is the truth in the middle of the worst public health crisis that we have ever lived through. It is destabilizing and terrifying to think that they have been actively misleading, not only on matters of masking and all of that, all of which we still haven't quite reckoned with the threat to um, public confidence in, in, in public health from the fact that they switched gears and said, don't wear masks and then wear masks. I know it was 18 months ago. People are still in a very weird state about masking, what kind of masks to wear, what, to, what they're talking about, all of that, because it seems like what was said at the beginning seemed truer than what they have now told us as a matter of absolute religious fact now. And so people, but people want to believe in anti-Fauci and want to believe in their local public health officials. A lot of people, not, not a lot of, you know, libertarianish Republican types, but others, because they're scared. They're scared. They're confused. They're unsure. And you want to be able to say, look, this is not my field. It's their field. They're saying wear a mask. I'm going to wear a mask until they say I'm not supposed to wear a mask. I'm going to not see my parents until they say it's okay to see my parents. And then if you back backfill and it turns out that um, there was some kind of a meeting of the minds in February 2020 to try to stuff into a cabinet drawer <clears throat> doubts and misgivings and fears about the origins of the virus and what that, that might mean, 
the long-term consequences of this are just staggering. I mean, we don't even, you know, at some point they'll, they'll say to us, look, you're going to have to do X in order to prevent Y. And a hundred million people in this country are going to say, I'm not falling for it again, even though if they say it the next time, they might be saying it completely, you know, in, ingenuously and with just total, a, a total wish to, you know, help people in any way possible. Um, and that, I mean, that's, I think, the incredible danger of this decision to kind of involve themselves geopolitically in the idea that, you know, there was no lab leak. It had, it had to come from eating a bat or something like that, because and if you actually think about it, the more one thinks about it, the more comic this is. There are two possibilities. There's a lab sitting in the middle of Wuhan that is doing this research or an individual person ate a bat from a wet market and and now millions of people are dead around the world. What just as a matter of logic seems to be the likelier of the two scenarios? Yeah, it's it's not just Occam's razor. It's like Occam's machete. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty. Listen, I just want to uh, pull back for a second and say, if this topic interests you, if you're interested in COVID-19 and our future and where everything is and the pandemic, uh, our friend Dan Senor's post-corona podcast this week is exceptional. Just did it. You can download it wherever you get your fine podcasts. Uh, his interview this week is with uh, Nicholas Christakis, the Yale doctor, professor, author of the book um, Apollo's Arrow. And uh, Christakis takes a kind of global view of how close we are to getting out of the pandemic. And I got to say, uh, it's kind of distressing because he says we are kind of not really, not only are we not nearing the end, we're not even at the end of the beginning. Um, and he kind of says, with everything going on and everything that's going to happen, we're not really going to emerge from the pandemic era, probably until 2024 that was it, it's worth hearing why i'm not sure he's right i mean i hope he's not right but um he also um and he's a man of the left uh goes very hard at the very public health authorities that we're talking about here about how they uh, mis mishandled and misled people and the long-term consequences of that so that's dan senor's post-corona podcast with nicholas christakis whom you may remember as being the yale professor uh, who came under one of the earliest woke, monstrous woke attacks. He was a master of a college. I guess you can't call them masters anymore. He's a master of a, of, a, of a college within Yale College. And his wife sent an email saying, go have fun on Halloween and don't worry about the political effects of your costumes, at which point students went crazy and started screaming, calling them racist and doing whatever. And uh, and leading to the famous quote where somebody said to Christakis's face, uh, I don't want to hear about your facts. I want to talk about my pain. So th this is a guy who has uh, suffered for, and his wife have suffered for being commonsensical uh, people uh, in, a, in, a, in a world gone mad in our woke topic here. And this is a really great podcast, Dan Senor's post-corona podcast with Nicholas Christakis. Go listen to it today. Okay, so let's move on to wokeness and Alan Sokol, because this is a great, great story. Quarter century ago, people may dimly remember this, but Jim, you sort of tell it beautifully and bring it up 
to the present day about sort of like the 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 comic the comic tragedy that is uh that is the alan sokol controversy yeah it was so much fun to dive back into this john i went to college as did you during the kind of peak of the era where postmodernism in its various forms was just was just raging through the academy in, in certain departments, comp- comparative literature, sociology, um, and following the lead of people like um, like uh, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, all everyone, all the cool professors were trying to deconstruct everything, and all the cool, all, and you know all the coolest people I knew who smoked French cigarettes and, and, uh, and took all the cool classes were deeply enmeshed in this, this worldview that was intensely skeptical of, of our normal definitions of reality. It was very much inspired by Marxism, but it wasn't always explicitly Marxist. And the idea was that everything we think about the world is actually shaped by by power, by colonialism, by capitalism. So we can't really trust any perceptions or any facts. And that was a, a notion that was that was spreading. Um, and by the 90s, it was starting to spread out of even departments that were strictly, or academics who would define themselves as postmodern into other fields. And around that time, a lot of the postmodernists were also embracing what they saw as a type of science, especially the French postmodernists. They would quote Heisenberg and other scientists and and as kind of justifying their their views that objectivity was a farce and that everything was subjective and and on and on. So Alan Sokol was a um, professor of mathematics and physics at, at NYU. And he was following this. He's a very lefty guy himself. So he thought some of the backlash against this was overblown. And, and, you know, sure, people are always going to complain if somebody's, you know, mentions Marx or something. Then he started looking into it. He said it was way worse than he thought. He was reading all these postmodernist papers that were referencing uh, concepts from physics and mathematics and getting them just totally absurdly wrong. So he decided, okay, I really need to raise attention to this, but if I just write an article saying this is bad, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna pay attention to my, my article. So he came up with this brilliant idea of writing a fake postmodern article and get, trying to get it published in one of these journals. And basically what he did was he took all the, what he saw as the most absurd, ridiculous quotations from leading postmodern thinkers that related to physics and, and, and science. And he strung them all together in an article with a superstructure of, of the language of the time and, um, and sent it around to get published. And it's when you read it today, it's really, if you remember that world, it's really, the article is, is funny on one level and kind of creepy on another level. I mean, let me, just, the, uh, just the title of the, of the paper was so great, Transgressing the Boundaries towards a transformative hermeneutics of quantum gravity. Well, if you remember the, the, the way that everyone, all these um, academics talked, that captures it perfectly. They were all, every article was always notes toward this or that. And, um, 
So he got this paper published in a journal called Social Text. In the days before it was going to be published, some other journalists actually figured out that there was this thing was a hoax. And he was, uh, Sokol was able to negotiate with this guy and his, I, I forget what the, it was an academic uh, publication that they would withhold disclosing it till after the, the Sokol hoax article was published. And then Sokol would, in their pages, admit to the, to the, to the scheme and, and kind of come clean. And so his, uh, his hoax article did see print and it, came out in 1997 and it caused a huge stir. All the postmodernists were really upset. They said he'd mischaracterized them. It was written up in the New York Times and Le Monde, of course, because all these, these, these thinkers are big celebrities in France. And it really kind of ignited a, a bomb under this, this field. But the, the effects of that were not as long lasting as one might've thought. Can I, can I jump in and say I was a grad student in history when this all happened and I had been assigned one of the books you talk about is Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And in the humanities, you correctly point out uh, how much science envy there really was. There had been math envy when I first started grad school, a lot of statistics, you know, we were all being made to do social science statistics, regression analyses, but then it became about science. And it was this idea that if you could deconstruct those, those uh, principles like gravity, then really everything is fair game. And it was, I remember sitting in seminars, uh, I would often have seminars in feminist theory, which included historians, sociologists, and women's studies graduate students. And the arguments about reality that would break out were a weird precursor. And when the so-called hoax hit, it was very gratifying for those of us who were confused by some of the claims that were being made about how the humanities could deconstruct anything. So it really, and, and you really do, as John said, you capture that moment in, in academic history very well. Right. Science well, the tragedy is, is a fantastic term because science right? envy applies to just about every authoritarian ideology of the 20th century, right? They all drape right. themselves in this, the polysyllabic jargon of uh, scientific inquiry when you get down right you know, into it, dialectical materialism is nonsense. But you can't say it's nonsense because it's scientific. That I mean, just marks you as a root. One of the reasons that the joke is so fantastic is that the title itself is nonsense. And, any, and, and it shows either the cynicism or the idiocy or the or the or the just the wild laziness of the people who accepted it for publication there is no such thing as quantum gravity let alone a hermeneutics of quantum gravity or the idea that gravity is a construct because by well, definition whatever gravity. huh there is a such thing as quantum gravity oh i'm sorry so there's a such a thing as quantum gravity but gravity cannot be a construct because if it were a construct, then half of us would be floating on the ceiling or flying into the sun. So that the article itself, you know, the gobbledygook of the article is contained within the title of the article. And and we move on from there. It's sort of like the minute that uh, you would say, OK, well, the minute, it, you know, that an editor who is a serious person saw the article, they would be like, well, this guy is crazy. We can't accept this. What is he talking about? And so the very fact that the very fact that it survived and it's it survived peer review and all of that is it uh, let me let yeah. me jump in it okay. wasn't it, it, this was not actually a peer reviewed right. no, no. journal right. but the 
the editors of the like journal 11 were 11 editors right yeah and these guys were superstars in this field um so you know it was a people like stanley aronowitz from from cuny uh frederick jameson the famous marxist literary critic these guys yeah. were the top names in the field the fact that they couldn't read this and not only was it kind of absurd on its face but but inside the piece he drops all of these funny little little jokes about physics and mathematics uh, that anybody who was uh, well versed in those fields would have caught them and and it didn't even occur to them say hey maybe we should have a physicist read this <laughs> you know just to double check it for us they didn't do that can I just uh, can I just uh, I need to bring in a cameo from from last week, if I could, um, because uh, uh, last week I quoted uh, a, a notorious line from the 1960s by a critic named Ellen Willis, who said good writing is counter revolutionary. Ellen Willis was the wife of Stanley Aronowitz, the editor of Social Text. So uh, the, the destructive quality of this one couple uh, can, cannot can, cannot be overstated, uh, shall we say? But of course, as I said, the tragedy that you lay out is that um, uh, Sokol's piece was a sort of ripple in a you know was a was a ripple or sort of a momentary uh, what would you call it? a momentary dam in a stream that has led inexorably to the present moment in which you know you can have. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones creating this fake history of the United States that she herself defends by saying all history is a fake narrative. So why can't I have my fake narrative? And then getting a, you know, getting a, an offer for a tenured position without review, just to start off with at, at you know, at a major American public university, uh, while saying that her work was not historically valid because there is no such thing as historical validity, just as there is no such thing as, as gravity. I want to point out one other last thing mentioned from last week, because just in case we think that this is, you know, this was a sort of a thing of, uh, of, of a weird moment. There was this astonishing quote in the New York times uh, relating to this uh, cancellation of the, uh, uh, speech at MIT that was going to be given by the University of Chicago's Dorian Abbott um, for being, uh, you know, for saying that pe people should advance on the basis of merit and not on the basis of their, of their race or gender. And uh, the speech was canceled. And this was defended by the chairman of the geosciences department at Williams College, Phoebe Cohen, who said this, quote, this idea of intellectual debate and rigor as the pinnacle of intellectualism comes from a world in which white men dominated. Now, there was a point at which I would say anyone saying that would be Alan Sokol, that this would, you could only say this as, a, as the reductio ad absurdum of this view, and it must be a parody, but it ain't no parody. Yeah, he, what's so weird about the essay is he was making fun of some of the most extreme and outlandish notions in this world. And yet when you read it today, it all sounds so familiar. Let me, let me just read you one line from his, from his introduction. He's basically saying why we, you know, science is 
uh, all of science is uh, is not based on facts, but just uh, uh, a, um, well, I'll read it to you. In the end, we can only conclude that physical reality, no less than social reality, is at bottom a social and linguistic construct that scientific knowledge, in quotes, far from being objective, reflects and encodes the dominant ideologies and power relations of the culture that produced it. That kind of captures that worldview in a nutshell. Everything is about ideology and power and dominance. And our entire view of reality is shaped by those things. So, uh, which is very, owes a lot to the Marxist idea of false consciousness. But then what happened in the 80s and 90s and beyond is that idea went far beyond the Marxist idea of class and invaded feminism, uh, critical race theory, uh, critical legal studies, all these other uh, queer studies, all these other fields. And they all took this idea that everyone's view of reality is, is influenced by these, these ancient power relations and the dominance of capitalism and colonialism. And you mentioned this, the science envy, Christine. So there was all this work to kind of uh, dismantle or deconstruct the notion of objective facts or reality in the world where these ideologies were working. But then you had these scientists over there who seemed to be chugging along, you know, establishing hard facts about the world and, and, and the universe. And that just was intolerable. And so if there was some way to say that science too is not is not based on anything solid, then that would really be a victory. And that's exactly why they loved uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn and Heisenberg so much. So uh, let me uh, step back uh, yet again to talk to you about our friends at the Acton Institute and their podcast, Acton Unwind. Refugees and border walls, woke celebs and socialist cheeks, social engineering and COVID lockdowns. It's easy to get wound up over what's happening in our country and in the world. That's why it's time for Acton Unwind, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Every Monday, join host Eric Cohn and Acton Institute experts, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico. Dr. Stephen Barrows, and more in this weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Acton Unwind will explain the news of the week through the Acton Institute's unique perspective, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we work to promote and shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit actin.org slash commentary or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's actin.org slash commentary to subscribe. I just, so, yeah. I, I, I think the most instructive thing for me and chilling thing about the so-called hoax and uh, and everything that, that, that followed is that it showed that exposing the the nonsense of 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 postmodernist thought doesn't impede its march at all 
um, you can lay it bare completely and, and it doesn't make a difference. People will still defend it and say, you got it wrong. And I say it's instructive because that's kind of been my experience. And I think a lot of people's experience in arguing against its sort of present day form uh, as it manifests in wokeness. And it kind of means you can't win arguments against it, um, that you're sort of wasting your breath because the, the, the claims made on, on the side of, of, let's just say wokeness now, remain unfalsifiable. Um, so you can hope to expose it in order to get uh, sort of other onlookers to be thoroughly sick of it, but, but, but you can't actually logically talk someone out of it. That's well, exactly right. And that was kind of the point, uh, I think, of this whole project. If you can say that, well, fit, you know, scientists don't really know much about the world because Heisenberg said there was an uncertainty principle. Thomas Kuhn said scientists all just rely on paradigms, which are partial, which are socially constructed. So science doesn't really isn't built on a solid foundation. So on what grounds do you criticize my my claims? You you don't really have there are no solid facts you can cling to to make a counter argument. Everything's just an interpretation of a text. I was I just, you know, I was kind of reminded of this when I saw after uh, there was no reconciliation deal, there was this scene of AOC making this uh, speech uh, out, outside of uh, um, Congress. And there were a bunch of young AC, AOC supporters standing around with banners and their masks. And her the point of her speech was to explain why nothing is in fact better than something. Uh, why, why getting nothing is better than something, which in itself is a kind of like a, a anti-logical mathematic proof, you know, that, 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 you know, lays out the sort of case for, for unfalsifiability. It's like, you know, it's saying, don't believe your, your, your senses. Don't, don't do the math. Take my word for it. Nothing is better than something. And you know she was sort of applauded and cheered on, and I was that that's that's kind of a, a postmodernist uh, uh, moment. But that, but the fact that you said take my word for it, that's actually the key, one of the key postmodern victories, and it, it it now stretches far beyond academia. And that's that if any if if even science can be deconstructed, the only thing that matters is one's lived experience, my truth. That's where my truth started. It started in those in those deconstructionists. We're just looking at text. Don't be alarmed, uh, French theorists, which have been and had a really kind of horrifying trickle down effect in the culture. You know, I mean, this is a this is a struggle, uh, three hundred year struggle in uh, Western civilization or longer. Um, that you know uh, is about um, the corruptions of philosophical thinking or the ability to or the hunger to privilege you know thought experiments over reality uh dating back to the you know incredibly great um uh, anecdote in boswell's life of johnson uh where, uh where boswell and johnson go to listen to a bishop george barkley uh uh anyway they they have a conversation uh talking about bishop barkley's as 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 uh boswell puts it ingenious sophistry to prove the non-existence of matter Right. Which is like which is like gravity being a construct and that everything in the universe is merely ideal. I observed that though we are satisfied, his doctrine is not true. It is impossible to refute it. 
Abe's point, right? I never shall forget the alacrity with which Johnson answered, striking his foot with mighty force against a large stone till he rebounded from it. I refute it thus. A hundred years after that, uh, Margaret Fuller, the transcendentalist philosopher, announced after a lifetime of cogitation that she accepted the universe to which Sam, to which uh, Samuel Carlyle said famously, by gad, she'd better. We are now in 2021 and we are being told yet again, seriously, that reality is a construct. Nothing matters. Nothing is real. All that matters is assertion. And the only thing that can refute it is kicking a stone and feeling pain in your foot. Um, and, you know, that's where we get to this whole notion, which I think comes out of this symposium that you're in, Jim, which is so much of it is, what, what am I crazy? Who are these people? What are they doing? What the hell are they talking about? Which is essentially what Alan Sokol was trying to reveal with his hoax. And it turned out that the hunger to privilege, as I say, raw, specious intellection over the over the you know the refute the the refutation via stone turned out to be more powerful than the refutation by of kicking a stone but there and there's also the fact that that there's another profession that that had a kind of envy they had theory envy and that's journalists journalism embraced this this veneer of look at we understand Lacan look I know who Foucault is I'm going to just insert some of this rhetoric into my discussion of very complicated issues like race and gender and and equality. So that I think also, again, talking about a veneer of a veneer of intellectual uh, street cred that has unfortunately become all too common among our journalists, too. I mean, there is one thing where Noah, I think Noah, Noah's answers here really do get to the heart of it, which is that in the end, if what we're talking about is a kind of a vulgar popularized Marxism, Theoretically, Marxism has a, you know, has a construct about how to live a better life and all of that philosophically. But really, it's about power. It's about the assertion of power. And in the end, when we're talking about wokeism, what we are talking about is the idea that white people had power. And now it is time for other people to have power and anything that remove and power is a zero sum game, according to this theory. So anything that removes power from white people including intellectual rigor, as uh, defined by Phoebe Cohen of Williams College, is fine because all that matters is power. And white people have dominated with power, and now it's time for other people. This is the successor ideology that Wesley Yang refers to. Other people get to take power from them. And that is a justification in and of itself. And all this other stuff- Not an intellectually satisfying justification. Willpower is famously capricious. So you have to establish a predicate, a theory, on which that assumption of power, that raw power capitalist is based, which is colonial history, dialectical materialism, you know, the cultural revolution and you know, Mao's China, all that stuff was dedicated to establishing a pseudo-scientific basis, a rationale for entirely arbitrary actions. Right. But again, it's because you gotta say something, right? I mean, that's part of the point here, is you, you know, you don't just you don't just say, you know. If you're in the mafia, you're like, okay, I shot you. Now I'm the Don. So that's not quite the way it works here. You have to offer some kind of a, 
manifesto, a couple of pages of documentation of your of your views and findings. And and in the end, it could be Alan Sokol, but not but but completely serious. It doesn't. That was the whole point for as long as it argued what it argued on its surface. Uh, Stanley Aronowitz didn't know the difference between it being a parody and it not being a parody. Because it was parodying the idea that all that matters was, was power and reality is just a construct. Um, and that's fine. Even if it, in the end, even if Sokol doesn't mean it, it's, it's fine. Which is terrifying. Because, of course, this is where the, you get intellectual desiccation and rot. <laughs> because, you know, if, you, if you're choosing, you know, it's like the classic thing. Are you, would you go to a doctor who, you know, like... Would you go to what 25, 30 years from now, if things progress the way they're progressing, uh, are people going to feel about their doctors the way people feel about the, their doctors now? If, if uh, there are no tests, if there are no standards, if people are sort of, you know, given or accredited as mental, medical professionals by dint of their, their race or their gender or something like that, are people going to go to a doctor and doctors and say, here, take this pill and it'll make you feel better? Are they gonna? Maybe, take, but that's the other well, thing about that's the other thing about this sort of dystopian world that we're ushering in here is if it is truly Soviet, then everybody understands the dance. You understand the dialogue you have to engage in in public and the things you have to say and the concepts to which you have to uh, express fealty to. And then also you develop a vernacular that allows you to evade those kind of uh, social prescriptions for proper civic and political health and discourse that you can kind of quietly understand without saying you know, the wrong thing. So if it was this sort of discussion with your doctor, yes, you would, the, the conversation would be laden with obnoxious stuff about trans no, no, rights, I'm not racial rights, the but then you would actually, but then you would have the literal cues to be able to navigate that sort of thing. I am not talking, you're now assuming that the doctor that you're talking about is competent. <laughs> I, I'm talking about the desiccation that leads to a world in which if people are chosen to do things like, are you going to have like an, an aerospace engineer who doesn't understand math? Well, how do you get an aerospace engineer who understands math if you're not allowed to test, you know, if the, if the SAT and the math achievement becomes optional? And if the thing that gets you graduated from MIT is your race and not your gender, and then is that guy going to design the shuttle are you going to fly in that plane are you going to are you going to take advice from a doctor at a medical school that that graduates people according to their race and gender this is life or death we're talking yeah, about well, here it's one, thing, the... it's one thing to be a social philosopher at nyu and it's another to be somebody who is handing out medicines that can kill you if and we're that's truly going thing. in that direction in 20 30 years i'm sure the chinese hypersonic missile uh, fleet will interrupt our arrest our progress <laughs> right. jim i'm sorry i keep interrupting you go well you know for a long time there was this feeling that yeah this crazy stuff is going on you know in departments of complet and um and and it's it's kind of silly but it's basically harmless and people graduate and they get out in the real world and and then, you know, they, they grow up and they move on to other things. And of course, you'll never gonna see this kind of thing in the chemistry department or the physics department or any, you know, any place the things that, that the world really relies on. But in fact, you have seen these things migrate into those departments, partly because 
these theories are so empowering for people to take over institutions, uh, you know, to challenge the people in charge of the institutions uh, from below. And we've seen how uh, weak need people running these academic institutions usually are. So these, these ideologies have filtered out into other departments. You, you see engineering departments talking about the need to, to critique you know, power relations in, in engineering. You see, you certainly see it in, in coming to fruition in healthcare today and in the, the, the power of, of trans ideology has, you know, has kind of dominated that corner of that field. So these things that started small have a way of spreading out both, you know, uh, both in ways that we see and in ways that are kind of underground that we don't see. Right. Um, you know, uh, you know how you know how you have a cell phone. You got this beautiful Apple, you know, an Apple for whatever with this beautiful glass. It can do everything like that. And then you're walking around, you drop it, and the glass shatters, and then you're kind of screwed, right? So you know you got to have a protective case. It can be very thin. Get it nice. It falls. It just has to have a little rim, and then your your glass is protected, right? Going online without ExpressVPN is like using your smartphone without a protective case. Most of the time you'll be fine, but all it takes is one accidental drop onto solid concrete to make you wish you had protected yourself. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old can do it. And a hacker can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal info on the dark web. So what does ExpressVPN do? It, it, it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer of over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. You fire up the app, click one button to get protected. It's so easy to use and it works on all devices. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash commentary. So yeah, we're talking about a dystopian future. Um, and yet, on the other hand, you know, it's very hard to believe that this stuff is gonna is going to survive the challenge of its, you know, collisions with reality of the sort that I am talking about. Like, yeah, people are going to need well-trained doctors and we're going to need aero, we're going to need nuclear physicists and we're going to need aerospace engineers and all of that. And somehow they will all get the training that they need. We're just making it harder and harder and harder for that to happen. Or we are siloing or we are going to create an extreme aristocracy of knowledge and merit, in which case there will be sort of secret training facilities. Uh, everybody else is going to sort of like end up in this weird egalitarian world of nonsense. And, you know, a couple thousand pe people a year. It's like Indian higher education. You know, there's the, there are these two or three great colleges or high schools in India and 350,000 people apply for 300 slots because they know if they get in, they will, you know, that their, their future will be assured and they will actually get a real education that that could be the United States in some fashion or other. 
But even those people, when they get into the what is now the so-called real world, they will still have an opportunity cost that they're required to pay in terms of their time and their research. And however skilled they are, they have to sit through those diversity, equity, inclusion seminars. They have to speak the language. The, the mental labor of making sure you're walking that line is, is growing by the day. And I think it's the opportunity cost. I'm glad that Noah mentioned the, the Chinese uh, hypersonic missile. Like that's what we're not doing with our time that we're spending on all of this nonsense. And I think that that's a really practical thing that most Americans understand when they hear that they're like, well, that doesn't seem smart. <laughs> and on the other hand, Jim, you, you, you have been, you have been detailing this world as the former editor of Popular Mechanics, it kind of makes sense that this is the world because, of course, what is Popular Mechanics? It's amateur. It's 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 the world of people who build ham radios and who, do, you know, that is popular, you know, who amateur scientists or non not a, who do these things out of love and not out of career ambition necessarily. And you have been telling these stories in part the the stories that we've been talking about. We talked about at the top about COVID and Wuhan and all of that that the research that has come to that is now um, exposed all of this comes from the world of amateurs. Isn't that interesting? One of the really striking things about what we know about the, the potential for the lab leak, it did not come from leading institutions. In fact, they were doing everything they could to stop anyone from asking the questions. It didn't mostly come from leading journalistic organizations it came from a few scientists who were operating kind of, um, you know, taking career risks to raise these questions. It came from some journalists who were, who were, you know, not at the New York Times or the, the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, but um, there, Nicholson Baker, the novelist, wrote an, a piece in New York Magazine. Vanity Fair did a big, great piece, but Vanity Fair is not usually where you think, you think you're gonna go for cutting edge science reporting. And, and two renegade science reporters on the New York Times <laughs> wound up, uh, you know, on writing on Medium, doing some excellent work. That, those, the, that handful of, of journalistic pieces from outside the mainstream was what kept, kind of broke the dam on this a little bit. And it's really striking. We might not even be talking about the lab leak if it wasn't for people willing to break with the consensus and that's exactly the opposite of how we would want things to work. We would want the people who are in charge of our safety in these institutions to be extremely curious about this question. And they weren't. They, and they weren't to a degree that was not just a lack of interest, but it was active suppression. Um, and, and, you know, th this, I guess, gets to the point, which is gets back to Brianna Keller and all this, which is. Um, people who are in, who who are seeking their advancement uh, in institutions that are themselves corrupted uh, have no choice uh, but to follow the dominant opinion, or or they will find themselves in career peril. It's certainly and true in the world. I mean, yeah. you know what Noah you said about the people will learn to speak this language. They'll they'll learn to navigate and still get their work done. That's true to a large extent, but boy, it's like living a double life. You know, when you read memoirs of people in the Soviet Union, how they had to, you know, kind of police their own their own speech, and even among their closest confidants, it's very difficult to uh, really live a, a a full intellectual life that way. Right. 
Uh, you know, this week, I should say, I think on Thursday, uh, the Thursday or Friday, the second quarter uh, GDP numbers are going to come out um, and uh, or third quarter GDP numbers, excuse me. And I bring this up because I want to talk to you about our friends at the Bonson Group, that three billion dollar under management financial services company run by our friend David Bonson. This is a week to go subscribe to DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com. The DCToday.com, his daily newsletter comes out around 6 Eastern time, explaining what happened in the markets this week. That number, this is a huge, huge moment. This could be a hinge moment uh, in uh, American politics at the present moment. And going forward, we had almost seven percentage points of growth in the second quarter. And everyone is saying that that is going to be halved or worse. The consequences, the fallout from this in relation to uh, growing inflation and the supply chain, uh, this continuing baffling uh, unemployment problem of all these jobs being unfilled and all of that. This is where this is what the markets are going to be dealing with. This is what we are all going to be dealing with in terms of figuring out what to do with our money and how to invest our money and where America is going this week. This week, you want to go go to DividendCafe.com and subscribe to David Bonson's two newsletters to see what's going on as we approach it and to read his analysis when the GDP number is out and to see what on earth we're supposed to do if it comes in as bad as some people fear that it's going to come in. So that's the DC Today and DividendCafe.com uh, from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management business. So uh, we we got to go. Jim, uh, you're, you actually are an optim... I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going in the pessimistic spangler decline of the west direction that is not your general mean i would say but uh so what what uh, what what gives you opt is it just is it just a matter of body chemistry or what gives you optimism yeah that's a good question i think it is very much in my nature to to sort of be an optimist and a skeptic of of gloomy you know uh, of gloomy analysis but my optimism got tempered a lot under COVID. You know, I, I thought I, I didn't want to commit to this. I never thankfully wrote this, but I thought we'd be out of it in six months. Um, and I, you know, I, I knew I had no good evidence for that, but it just seemed unlikely to me. So, you know, I've learned to temper some of that optimism. Uh, and, and I think when I look at the state of our, the intellectual health of of our country, our institutions, yeah, I'm I'm having a harder time being optimistic, and and I worry that you know, as I was saying earlier, ideas that were once part of sort of small pockets of elites in you know at Yale and and Cornell places like that have spread out, even to people who never went to college. Uh, I think you'll see echoes of some of these ideas even on the right. You know, and if you go to the to the the sort of far QAnon right, I think you'd also see people say, well, what is reality really? Uh, how do you know? Uh, everything, all information is corrupt by, pow by these powerful groups. They might identify different powerful groups, but these two worldviews aren't that different. And so when I look at that, it does concern me. And I really do think people have to fight for 
for our enlightenment values of rationality and objectivity and individuality. Well, we have succeeded in pulling you over to the crushing morosity side of the conversation. I am so proud, so very proud to have taken, to have brought you into the commentary family and to have taken your sunny optimism and crushed it into a ball. Where's my t-shirt? Welcome. It, we got, you're coming, you're, you're coming by our office tomorrow. You're getting a t-shirt. Uh, so thanks for joining us. We'll be back with you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.